So when you first go in, how soon is it before you're exposed to an autopsy? A day. What? If you work the streets for any length of time, which most of my services are on the streets, you do encounter a lot of death and a lot of bodies. I was on firearms, one of the first firearms specialists. Uh, and we were just on call all day, every day. There was 12 of us to cover the county. And I was one of four that was qualified in, in all the range of weapons, including sniper rifles. When we got to the search team, although we were a counter-terrorist search team, we very soon got in discussion with some middle-ranking CID officers who realised that the the very, very, very meticulous search techniques that we employed at an explosive scene could be deployed at um, a crime scene. Well, Sunday afternoon, 2.10, witness, we got a call, um, intruders on a chemical factory, which was just off the main street. Myself and my partner rolled up, and guess who we found? Mm. I think it was only about 10 or 12 or something. He was beginning to have a bit of a reputation, I suppose. A bit of a Pied Piper sort of character. You know, kids would flock round him. But the problem was, not that he'd been feeling muscles and <laughs> testing biceps, as it were. It was the fact that there was a the crowd of people there wanted to kill him. Here we are, folks, with my first ever arresting officer. <laughs> Some of you in America have watched the episode of Vice. I was a teenage felon. Season two, episode four, Ecstasy Kingpin. And the Vice crew came out to my hometown and to Liverpool, and they filmed Ian Seville. Now, the story of Ian Seville... Well, actually, before we go there, that's a damn fine red outfit you've got on, Jen. <laughs> yes, if you'd like to um, find this lovely red play suit, it's organic cotton and it is from Nomads Clothing. Uh, Nomads.co.uk. Link will be in the description box. So, as many of you know, I got released in December of 2007. Spent the first year in 2008 with my parents in witness at the house and we're doing some kind of event i can't remember what it was and then there's two djs at this event and ian one of the djs walks up to me and says you don't remember me do you i'm like no oh, i ain't gonna make that you approached me in the pub and you said are you pc Sevil?" okay well, normally when somebody asks you that question, in my reason, you take a step back because the next <laughs> thing that's going is a fist or a pint, of, a pint of beer emptied over your head. And then Sean told me who he was and, uh, well, that was it. We spent most of the rest of the evening nattering away on a big catch-up. How did you become my first ever resting officer? Well, you should know. You did the crime. <laughs> Tell the viewers. <laughs> well, Sunday afternoon, 2.10, witness... I think it was the summertime, so there's no rugby on. Um, <laughs> nothing much happening. Then we got a call. Um, intruders on a chemical factory, which was just off the main street. Um, it just it had been a big chemical factory, hadn't it? That one and uh, it recently been emptied. So we were getting all kinds of trouble with kids going in and out, in and out. 
and uh, myself and my partner rolled up and guess who we found. So what were you doing there that day? We decided to break into a chemical factory and got covered in these really bright colours, like orange and yellow and stuff. And we were walking out of this factory covered in these chemicals, coated in them. So being a very <laughs> astute police officer, reading the signs and interpreting the clues, <laughs> these two guys are stood there like human marker pens. <laughs> Come here. <laughs> Where you been? What you done? Get in the car. So you got locked up, basically. I think it was only about 10 or 12 or something. That's quite young. Yeah. 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 But it wasn't like, we weren't breaking into like Robert or anything. It was just like hijinks. <laughs> if you say so. Adventure. Kids trying to have an adventure. In chemicals. Well, we didn't know what we were getting into properly. That's probably why all his hair's falling. <laughs> Well, I mean, the top and bottom of it, well, we took him home. Uh, well, we didn't we go to cells first? No, no, we couldn't put you in the cells. Okay. I don't think you can be in the cells till you're 14, can you? Um, no, it's, it's adults. We had what we call a detention room. Right. Now, the cells have obviously got windows with bars and big, thick iron doors and the hatches that let down um, with a toilet and a bench and a bed. And the detention room for the poor little ones is about <laughs> half the size with no windows, no doors. <laughs> and it, it frightens me to death. When you shut the door, that's it. There's nothing. Wow. And that's in, why we put the kids in. That's where you Can you remember? We were all in there crying, waiting for our parents. That's all. Eric and your mum came down. Yeah. And I, I only knew your dad slightly because he used to call up to my wife's house. Yeah. My wife's parents' house. Um, so I knew Derek, your dad, and... Told him what happened, and basically it was just like kids messing about. So we thought, well, you can't really lock a, a youngster up and give him a criminal record at that age for that level of crime. And me and the sergeant talked about it, and the best way to get rid of the problem was basically put the fear of God up these kids. <laughs> you know, really <laughs> give them the bollocking of a lifetime. And uh, that was basically it, then out the door. And leave the rest to the parents and summary justice. <laughs> I have no doubt Derek had a go at you when he got home. I did behave myself in witness after that. You did? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I never came across you again, so I'll give, give you that. See? Until <laughs> you approached me in the pub that night. But, <laughs> but that, was, that was the start of your car criminal career, wasn't it? It was my first felony. Felony. <laughs> we don't have felonies and misdemeanors. <laughs> so if you want to watch the full documentary, go on Vice Channel, I Was a Teenage Felon, Series 2, Episode 4, XC Kingpin. And you can see Ian in action on the camera. <laughs> so Ian, why did you become a cop? What Did you aspire as a kid to become a cop? Yeah, I did actually, yeah. Um, I worked quite closely with a, a police accident prevention officer on road safety things, teaching kids to ride bikes, quizzes and all, all the rest of it. But... Um, this particular police officer wanted me to be a teacher because we had some good results between us teaching youngsters how to ride bikes and this, that and the other. Um, I was a qualified cycling proficiency instructor. I think I was the youngest one in the country. Uh, I did a lot of cycling anyway in my youth. Um, so the upshot was I went down to Brighton to the uh, teacher training college there. Qualified from that. And what, what is the training? It's just a normal t uh, teacher training, and uh, I was at PE and 
history, English. Um, but I, I went for one or two interviews in the Brighton area because I mean, Brighton's a terrific place. Student-wise, it's, it, I think I came on three times in three years. You know? <laughs> um, so I quite fancy staying there, but uh, didn't get a job. So in the end, they threw me out the college. <laughs> so I had to come home. <laughs> so I, get, I got home and uh, I ended up working for 12 months while I was trying to decide what to do um, at a, an outdoor clothing company called Kaimo. And I ended up designing and making rucksacks for couple of different expeditions uh and in that time i thought well i'm going to revert back to plan a and i joined the police mm. and i got posted down to witness it was lancashire in those days not yeah not cheshire we are now cheshire um it was the south end of lancashire and lancashire extended from way up in a division in barrow and furnace all the way down encompassed all the towns like uh berry bolton oldham all the places that are now Greater Manchester. And they changed over on the 1st of April, 1974. Don't remember that, but your mum and dad will. And we woke up on the 1st of April and we were all people of Cheshire. Wow. We were part of the Cheshire set all of a sudden. <laughs> Do you come from a lineage of police officers or? Not at all. No. Not at all. Um, was there something that triggered you as a kid that you saw perhaps the cops doing stuff or? I think it was going back to working with the um, the this PC Mike Balance got to get his name in. He's a, he's a lovely man, um, and we, we just went all over our area of Lancashire doing training events and this that and the other. And uh, I fancied doing his job, but of course I had to join the police and go through all the different ranks mm. to get to that line of speciality. Unfortunately, by the time I got there, they'd abolished that job, <laughs> <laughs> so I went into I was mainly a tutor constable trained dozens and dozens of uh, other uh, young police officers once you've been through the training centres you pop your water them they come out and you show them the you know the detail the sharp end of the job um, and we have a few laughs with the professionals <laughs> good few laughs then in 1970 sorry 1984 there was the Brighton bombing if you remember that yes because the Brighton bomber does talks right now with Gee, yeah the daughter of one of his victims. Yeah. He does talks. Does talks, the two of them. So last time I spoke in Hull, the headmaster was telling me they have to like get the parents to sign off on this one because it's so controversial. Mm. Yeah. Well, leading up to that, I was on firearms. Um, one of the first firearms specialists. I mean, you see them in cars all around the town. And people don't bat an eyelid, but in those days it was quite revolutionary to have a firearms specialist. Uh, and we were just on call all day, every day. Um, and then I injured a leg in 1984. Uh, that took a while to get better and get back to work, but I couldn't do the firearms. It wasn't stable enough. But we had the, the bombings in the meantime, and that event caused a shift in the security aspect of um, royal visits and VIP visits, whereby what we call defensive searches, uh, rather than a warrant where you're going out on an offensive basis, these are defensive searches looking for things that, you know, explosive devices. Um, the responsibility from that passed from the army to the police after after Brighton. And that led to this formation of these, what the, the full name is counter-terrorist search teams. 
they're only ever referred to as search team. You see them on the TV at crime scenes. Um, Cheshire were very instrumental in the deployment of search teams at crime scenes. Um, but ostensibly, we were licensed by the army had to pass an army qualification and uh, before we could work on um, these sort of defensive searches where uh, explosives may or may not be involved. And um, that took me through right practically to the end of my service. Wow. So when you first go in, how soon is it before you're exposed to an autopsy? A day. What? <laughs> A post-mortem. Um, a sudden death, as we call it, and I think you've, you've read a, an episode of a sudden death. Um, you can't really produce them on demand. Now, when you've got a, 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 tutor, con, a tutor con with you, you've got them for um, four or five weeks, and then they're out on their own. Within that four or five weeks, you can't guarantee that somebody's going to pop the clogs within the parameters that make it a sudden death. What then happens is, if I hear a sudden death come, you know, uh, on the air, I'll, from my records, I'll know which of my probies have done a sudden death, which happened. If it's one that hasn't, I'll take that one. Um, PC so and so, where are you? I'll pick you up, and we'll do it. You know, do the job between us. Um, on my first day, I got a sudden death, and it was yeah, I think it was very early on the following day. We had the post-mortem and I was also the representative there for a, a second post-mortem to save time, two officers up in the same place. So I got away with it for 24 hours before wow. before we had a post-mortem. What did you see? Um, well, just about everything, really. Everything that's in there, that's in there, that's in there. It's a funny thing. It's, it's one of the things that you never really... Um, you get in there, lad. You know, pull yourself together, and all this business. No, you you can't do that. Some some guys could cut it. Some guys couldn't. Um, I, I would never force a probationer to you know go in there. And, have a and it also it depended on the pathologist as well. We were lucky. We had one pathologist, Doctor Martindale. If you're listening, um, he was brilliant. He would not. Turn a hair if you'd rather sit outside. But if you were interested, he'd spend another hour with you, um, showing you what he was looking for, talking you through his thought processes. And, you know, just rub your little finger along that valve, in, you know, heart valve. He said, can you feel that little lump? That's what's killed this 16-stone docker, this tiny little thromer in the heart. And you really learned a lot from that man. Really learned a lot. He was. We had another one. I'm not going to tell you his name, but he was not nice, you know. In what way? He was very bullying, very arrogant. Um, one of the things you do with a post-mortem, you uh, take all the medication with you. Um, the, the, thing, the, the first thing you instill on a probation when you go into a sudden death is, you're not going to a sudden death. You, go, you are going to the scene of a murder until you convince yourself otherwise. And if you can't convince yourself otherwise, you get somebody else in there straight away. And obviously one of the things you would do was collect um, the medication. You'd have to check the body, which again is not something a lot of people are comfortable with. When you lean a body up, the air comes out mm. and you can actually get a sound and that frightens. But it's something you get used to. 
Um, but you get the medication, this particular event, I think I was well out of my probation, this this one, showed him the medication and he was saying like, you know, well, what does this do and what does that do? And I said to him, well, you're the doctor. Well, he didn't like that. And <laughs> the following morning, I'm on the chief superintendent's office, white gloves, getting a bollocking. <laughs> Not to be rude to the pathologist. So yeah, to, uh, sudden deaths. And there was a, there was a prank at one of these. Uh... <laughs> so I'm laughing because I've already read this one. <laughs> um, you'll probably find that this prank has been reproduced in many police stations up and down the country, and people listening will recognise it. Basically, when you go to a sudden death, you take charge of the body. You are the coroner's agent. And you have to preserve that body as evidence. So you, you come along to the house, satisfied it's not the scene of a murder that is in practice sudden death. And then you call an undertaker, nominate an undertaker, remove the body to the mortuary. Witness had a very good mortuary, as mortuaries go. It was new, it was clean, stainless steel, with a fridge for about 12 people. Um... You lodge the body in the mortuary, then you had to go inform the coroner, coroner would nominate a pathologist, ring the coroner, you just do the, the organisation. And then you would meet back at the nominated time and get the, the body ready on the slab. Sometimes you're lucky, you had a mortuary attendant who did all the cleaning up and stitching the body up afterwards. This particular time, we didn't. I had to stitch the bodies up myself. Um... Can't sew a button on a shirt, but I can sew a body up. <laughs> but, uh, um, when you get, we got a probationer with us. Don't tell you his name; he'd sue me. <laughs> um, you, you know where the you know the, the, the position of the body is recorded. We go down half an hour before the the post mortem is due to get the place ready. So we're there, open the trolley, and there's like a little cantilever trolley that sort of winds up to the height of the shelf. These comes out on rollers. Oh, I've forgotten the sudden death report. Tell you what, you get the body out on the onto the trolley, and I'll nip back and pick up the phone. <laughs> so you run out, car drives off about two hundred yards up the road. Then you and the rest of the shift come back. And this particular lad, he, he wasn't comfortable with being alone in a mortuary, let alone having to get all of a body. And he's very tentatively opening the doors, getting to the right one and winding the trolley up so it's just right at the right level. And trying not to look at it as he pulls, slides it out onto the trolley and tentatively winds it down. Then you just move the trolley away, go through the doors into the main room and you park it at the side. Then you've got to get the body off the trolley onto the table. What he doesn't know is, under that sheet is now one of our sergeants. <laughs> he's done this so many times, he's got it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> His sense of time is beautiful. And he can, he can hear, he could sense the palpitations. And just as this young lad is about to put hands on this body, and lift him onto the, the slab. He just sits up straight. And, God, this young lad is out. The, gone. He's gone. He's up the road. And we're all outside, barely laughing. Well, 
<laughs> mm. I mean, he took it in good part. And to the point was, he said, well, next time I want a part of this, you know. I said, well, you want to go in the... Yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'll have a go, so. It was weeks, weeks later, I got another probationer. <laughs> so, are you ready for this? You're still up for it. You can... So, meet me at the mortuary at such and such a time and we'll set it all up. So, sets him up, we put some on, on the trolley. So I'm going to wind you in now. I said, it's cold in there, but it's not. you won't freeze. You know, it's mm. a chill, it's not a deep freeze. I said, and if you panic, the doors will open from the inside. Could never figure that out. We never really had one that wanted to come out of their own cord, <laughs> but apparently you could. Mm. So we gets him laid over there, puts a sheet on and shuts the doors. And I drive the pander off so the sounds are going. And then we're waiting. And waiting and waiting and he's in there bodies to the left of him bodies to the right of him <laughs> oh. well what he thought were bodies to the right of him what it actually was was the same sergeant with a sheet <laughs> up that we put in there before but again timing was superb we left him and left him and left him it must have been 20 30 minutes and he's lying there and you could almost hear his teeth chattering and just at the right moment, the sergeant. Cold in here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the young man proved that you can open a mortuary door from the inside. <laughs> and he, he never set foot in the mortuary from that day to this. But... I don't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you, you can... I mean, you, you've got to make light of some, some things. You know, mm. you, you'd go mad if you didn't. You hear a lot about black humour, policeman's black humour. It's very black, very black. <laughs> <laughs> Did people play, play tricks on you when you first started? Um, yeah. Yeah, quite a few. Um, one thing, yeah, I remember being sent to, um, you'll remember Grundy's Chemist, won't you? Grundy's Chemist, whereabouts was that? Um, Witness Road, about halfway up on the right-hand side as you go up. Towards where there's a big double-fronted chemist with the big traditional red and blue vats, chemical vats on the side. Vaguely. And he, he, Mr Grundy was a cracking man. If ever you went to a job where people were on oxygen and they were running low, ring Mick Grundy, he'll come down. And he was just a thoroughly, Fabulous. thoroughly nice man. And um, I got sent up uh, by the station sergeant to Mr Grundy's to uh, pick up the verbal agreement stamp. He was cleaning it. The verbal agreement stamp. What's that? Verbal agreement. Oh, I know. Rubber that. stamp. I, I don't quite get it. I'm going to say well, really it's a verbal agreement. Well, it's stamp, stamp? <laughs> no, that's what I was thinking. I had to go for the verbal agreement. <sighs> and Mick Grundy was, he was in cahoots with another guy up the road. Oh, it, it was getting a bit tatty, so I had to send it up to be recut. Uh, another shop's going to say, I've gone to pick up the verbal agreement stamp. And I got bounced over every shop in the town asking for the verbal agreement <laughs> stamp. <laughs> that, that was a favourite one, but nothing as, nothing as drastic as the, uh, the, the mortuary stuff. <laughs> but I mean, if you work the streets for any length of time, which most of my service was on the streets, you do encounter a lot of death in a lot of bodies and it's something you you need a bit of a built-in mechanism mm. i remember one week on earlies 
early started on a Friday, then we had the weekend, and it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We used to work seven days on, on a trot. And on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I had a, a suicide death every day. I was mean to feel like an undertaker by the end of that shift. You know, you do oh, see a lot of... Uh, does that, like, haunt you when you arrive on a scene like that? Mm. Not really, no. I mean, I've, I've, it's never something that's bothered me. I don't know whether I'm an insensitive soul or not. I don't know. Mm. But, um, uh, one of my tutors told me uh, a piece of advice, which I passed on. He said, don't think of that as a body. Mm. That's just a package yeah. that person came in. He was wrapped in. That's that's just the wrapping. Um, the main thing with much is the smell. It, that can get a bit nauseous. And I always used to keep a, a little um, tube of Vic in my pocket. Did you put a a wipe into that just underneath your nose? That'll keep the smell at bay. What, little tips that you pick up from. Mm. What? How would you describe the smell? Mm. Think of the worst piece of rotting food that you've oh. ever smelt and then multiply it by 10. You know, because if you get a full post-mortem, all the windy wiggly bits here get emptied, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, it's, it is pretty gross. Oh. Again, and that's another reason why um, we never used to insist on, you know, you will stand there and you will watch it. You are here to prevent a breach of the peace. You know, if you don't like it, go stand outside. You're not missing anything. No. Um, there's that, and funny enough, one of the other jobs which we lost in chess, that was shooting dogs. A dog that had got injured in a road traffic accident. We had a, a humane killer in the police station. And we were expected to put dogs down. But that was another job that um, we never said, here, go and do it. I think I was for about three years, I was the only one on our block that would put a dog down. How many dogs did you put down in total? Ooh, probably about 20. Oh, wow. It's quite a regular thing. Um, there aren't as many wild, you know, sort of dogs roaming the streets as there are now. Mm. Um, but you get the, you know, the, the big rough estates. They used to run around in packs and then... Kingsway was one of the main areas. Oh, yeah. Like outside my nan's house, Gloucester Road, there was packs of dogs. Yeah. Around Vicky Park, packs of dogs. Yeah. People would say, watch them, you're going to get rabies. Mm. I mean, they'd get injured and it was patently obvious that, um, you know, they weren't going to survive it. We were trying to get a vet out. But we didn't have on-call vets or anything like that in those days. And you could be there for hours waiting for this poor dog to be put down so we had a, what they call a captive bolt gun which basically you drew an x between the eyes and the ears where the two lines intersected that's where you put put your foot on the back of the neck that squashed its head and wow captive bolt gun that's what they used on the mad cows didn't they when there was the mad cow disease yeah, the bolt guns. yeah they were a bit bigger guns or the bit yeah. bigger bolts yeah this was just a run by two two Destination by a 2-2 cartridge. What murder scenes did you arrive upon? Ooh, quite a lot. Uh, but I'll put a caveat on that. Um, on your day-to-day -day panda driving, very, very, very rarely. Um, but when we got to the search team, 
although we were a counter-terrorist search team, um, we very soon got in discussion with uh, some middle-ranking CID officers who realised that the the very, very, very meticulous search techniques that we employed at an explosive scene could be deployed at um, a crime scene. And we actually took um, one one of these guys up, Peter Rigby, up to one of the requalification times at an army base in, in Yorkshire. And the army guys there actually detonated um, a small device in the living room of an old army house that was due for demolition. And we, as a search scene, went in. And this is not like rummaging through drawers. You're on your hands and knees with tweezers mm. going through, you know, and it's all day to do one part of a room. But we recovered enough tiny fragmented component parts of that device, little bits of blue glass, little bits of wire, little piece of a battery that you wouldn't think twice at if you saw it you know, on the ground, put those to one side and another army um, explosive uh, expert came along, had a look at it and he explained to Peter that with what was recovered there, he could tell what kind of device um, was used, how it was triggered and roughly a fair idea of who probably would have made it because each bomb maker has their own signatures. Yeah. Wow. You've heard that. So that sort of convinced um, Peter, who was v very well up in the, the, the uh, crime uh, unit, that we get deployed. Once the, the scientific scene search has been done, that we get deployed into that. And we went to just about oh, lots and lots of them. Um, one we went to uh, in Eton. Um down near Macclesfield where a young woman had been set fire to and had to reprimand, reprimand one of the superintendents that was walking up and down the church path and standing on bits of burnt flesh. You know, some, you met a very high class of criminal on the search team. Mm -hmm. But we, we were called into lots and lots of the, the crime scenes, major crime scenes. Um, another one we got deployed at was the um, the anthrax scares that were going about. We were issued with chemical and biological soups keeping the boot of the car. <laughs> and it, it always made me laugh because you used to go to these uh, explosion scenes and all the lads in the local Nick were all experts. They all wanted to get in on it. Telling me you're going to the scene of possible anthrax contamination and <laughs> they were out the back door, yeah. you know. But uh, that was one of the things I noticed most about when I retired. Nothing in the boot of my car. It was full of equipment. So I used to have to empty my car to go shopping. <laughs> full of <laughs> kit. And uh, I used to lecture and instruct for crashed aircraft body recovery. Um, one of the hardest things to get through to, these were search team people was, I was teaching. It's not just a two-dimensional search, left and right and front and back. It's a three-dimensional search because you've got lots of stuff hanging in the trees. Right. And that was that, that could have fortunately we got deployed on on a on a large scale, but that was something you had to be prepared for and uh, have the the procedures for. 
Stuff. Wow. It sounds like you're taking it all in your stride. Mm. But what about when you arrive at a scene where there's like a dead kid or something like that? Was that pretty disturbing? Yeah, it, it, children. I, I did one cop death, and yeah, that that got to me a, a bit. I was very very quiet. I mean, my wife bless her, she she can read me like a book. Um, I got home that night, and it was it's on early's, and it was in a not very nice area. A witness, so I knew all the, the family concerned, um, but and it was a genuine cop death, and it, it, it just you're on a downer for a couple of days. You, you won't yeah. be human if you weren't, you really, really won't be human. Um, you, you can fight off the you know the, the sort of black humor syndrome as much as you can, but there's, there's times where it just goes that little bit, you know, gets just gets you a bit, and more since I've had a family of my own. You know, but uh, I've, always, I've always done the firearms and the search team um, when I've been married and, and a father. Then when they first started the, the firearms team, um, they, were, they were all married men because they, they, the reasoning was they thought the married men would be more stable. Mm. And firearms specialists were very much a, an experimental thing. Didn't want anything going wrong, you know, that... Come back and bite me in the bum. But it was getting to a stage where firearms were being deployed that much more often that chief constables had to start taking it seriously. And you know, you, you've got to have a some sort of procedures where you can call upon. You can't put a a man with a, an eighteen foot piece of wood in his pocket up against a guy with a shotgun. Mm. You know, so they had they got to a point in the sort of late seventies where you know there was twelve of us to cover the county. And I was one of four that was qualified in, in all the range of weapons, including sniper rifles. So, and say so we were just on call all day, every day. You're expected to, you know, lift the phone. And come, come when called. And we did. <laughs> <laughs> What's that feel like arriving somewhere where anything can happen? Um. You don't really think of it that way. You just you, you get to the place and you 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 just go into a routine, you know. Um, we couldn't carry the firearms with us, you know. We hadn't convinced them that much by that time. Um, so the first thing we were looking at was um, when's the van coming with our equipment, um, and if it was going to take a long time. The police station where we were, they usually had divisional firearms, handguns. Let's get them out, you know, because a firearm team is practically no good with no firearms. So mm -hmm. it mainly the first thing was to, to to get you know armed up. Wow. So you talk on this list about a copper's intuition. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's just sudden death again. We've been very morbid, aren't we? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wrote a story. Uh, about this, we had a police magazine called the Police Review, and eighties something like that, mid eighties. Um, you could submit stories, you know, short one page stories, and if it got printed, you, you'd get twenty five quid. Mm. My wife could feed us for a month on twenty five quid back then. <laughs> so, <laughs> pen. <Yeah. laughs> uh, this one was um, down by the market. Um, Got called a sudden death there, and uh, 
went into the house that it wasn't um wasn't locked and it was it was the pits absolute pits um you went from the sort of 1980s on one side of the door to the 1950s 40s on the other side and uh looking around the house there's an old lady dead in the chair mm. obviously been there for days and days and mm. days your nose told you that again going back to the smell mm. um so it was like you get the undertakers out yeah 70 10, yeah. Undertakers, are, they'll be with you in 90 minutes. 90 minutes, they're only across the square. <laughs> you know, <laughs> must have been a busy time of year. So, anyway, I'm looking around the house trying to find some identification for this poor, poor woman. Um, she was in the, the, the sort of back living room. The parlour, I think, is the old fashioned term, oh, isn't yes. it? And there wasn't much there. There was an, an old fire grate, uh, a chair that was practically worn down to the springs. She'd beginning begun to melt into these springs. Um, mm. A table with some bread, slice slices of bread, excuse me, on a breadboard. They're like breeding grounds for penicillin. They'd been there that long. Oh. Um, there was tin, half-eaten tins of beans and obviously weeks and weeks old. Um, and all around the place there was buckets of um, excreta and urine. She'd obviously not been to the toilet. Probably not been out of that room in years, years. Good grief. The carpet was, I don't know if you've ever seen a carpet when it goes threadbare, it was black and stinks like tar. Mm -hmm. Well, apart from the far reaches of the corner, that's all this carpet was. Um, so I did quit. There wasn't much to look around in that. That particular room, so we went around to the, the front room, the posh room, and uh, there was a big, huge Welsh dresser there, looking through there, trying to find some evidence of a next of kin. Rummaging round and balls of nylon stockings that you know, moved around. I felt one a minute, it crunched. That's not normal. I pulled all these stockings out, and there's a roll of notes in the middle about. 800, 900 quid from memory, something like that. Well, I thought we found a stash, but there's just something told me about that room that something else in here. Right. Don't know what it was, but it. I was convinced there was something in there. This intuition, if you like. Um. Anyway, we got. Uh, I found some correspondence. I identified a, an ex of kin as a daughter down here. I think it was Guildford. So, off to the radio, can you get the police in Guildford to, you know, deliver the deathogram, tell her she needs to come up here. I'm looking round. Still three quarters of an hour before the undertakers arrive. Mm. And in the corner there's a bit, a huge safe. I mean, the keel must have been two inches high. I thought, something's in that. That's not normal. Could I find that? I thought, if the keel's two inches... It ain't going to be a little tiny Yale key. It's going to be a big... Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, where do old ladies keep things like that? I know, in the penny. I was going to say that. Always the in the... The purse and the keys yeah. are always in the penny pocket. No, not this time. Nothing as easy. Um, anyway, the, at the end of the day, they the, the came and um, took the old girl off to the mortuary. And uh, we made arrangements for... 
the next of kin, the daughter, to come up. I think this was a Friday and she couldn't get up till Monday. So on Monday we reassembled at the house and I asked a, a friend of mine, a retired policeman who then worked at the council, to bring down a couple of lads with crowbars. So we showed this lady around the house. We went into the upstairs. One bedroom was nailed shut. The other bedroom what? had nothing but springs of a, a bed and some newspapers going back to about 1947. Good grief. I mean, this was an all-time low in social neglect and deprivation. And I thought, how could that daughter live in Guildford in Surrey and her mother's living like this? Yeah. And she'd obviously been dead for days and days. Anyway, we we gave her the money that we had found, got it out, the, took it to the police station, put it in the police station safe, and handed that over to her. And I was explaining, do you know anything about your mum's affairs? No, that's a thing, not a thing. I, th I think all she wanted to do was sell the house and get back to Guildford. Mm. Um, but I asked mm. Harold, the friend, I to get these guys to have a go at this safe. And it took them a couple of hours, but they got the back off it. So it was the weakest bit of a safe. If you fancy doing a bank job, weeks. <laughs> 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 that nice. And um, they got the back off the safe, and there's a big drawer in there uh, with a lot of sort of policy documents and stuff like that, which you gave to the daughter. So you need to look through those. You know, there might be something in them to cash in. And then right at the bottom, there's a, a big ammunition box with a lock on it. Well, the lock soon went. That, <laughs> that came off. And we opened the door and we're all, all gathered around this ammunition box like, like an Agatha Christie murder scene. We opened this. You, you can just visualise the, the light coming on your face. And it was absolutely crammed full of old five-pound notes, pound notes, tenors. It was, and you know, I, I knew it. I, I, at that minute then, with that, that feeling that something went... That copper's intuition told me something was there, and this was it. There was thousands there. Wow. But the funny thing was, right in the top, there's a 10 shilling note. Do you remember the 10 bob notes? No. No. <laughs> Not a chance. They were small, mm -hmm. but they were orange. Oh, right. And they stood out. And I had a young cadet with me, and this cadet said, what's one of them? <laughs> The only feeling I had then was one of creeping old age. <laughs> oh, yeah, what's one of them? Yeah. It's not cold yet. But, uh, yeah, that was... So, another old lady... Good feeling. Another old lady was subjected to a flasher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Why are you admitting to that one as well? You're going to have it TIC'd. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I'm on patrol in the car. Gets a call to go to a quite a, a respectable house. You'll know it, Sean. The Kingsway traffic lights, Lee Avenue, going down towards the Albion. They're slightly raised up. Some big detached 1930s houses. Is it nice? Yeah, it's it's one of. Are you coming into witness from the north? It's it, it's quite it looks quite nice, doesn't it? The, the Pexel side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, not the, was, not the granite side. No, definitely not the granite <laughs> side. Or the bridge. But um, <laughs> yeah, an old lady lives on her own. Very respectable. Yeah. And um, 
what's the matter? They told me the basis of what this old lady had gone to the door and got a shock. So I said, what's happened? You know, come, come through to your living room, sit down. Are you all right? Do you want to, to make you a cup of tea? No, I said, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Are you going to tell me what's happened? I said, well, he knocked on the door. Who did? The postman? No, 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 no. He knocked on the door and I went, I went to the door and there it was. Go on, what? <laughs> he was pushing it through the letterbox. Shut up. What, the mail? No, not the mail. He's, he's, he's you know, he's thinking, he's, he's willy. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he put his penis through the letterbox. Yeah, I'm biting me later. Right. So I'm, I'm sure you're all right. Any relatives you want me to? Don't come, do you want to tell me a little bit about it? She said, well, basically said that was it. I looked at the door and it was half glass, half wood, with the letterbox round about the middle, the old-fashioned type of doors. So I'm thinking, unless this guy's built like a porn star, he must have been stood quite close to that glass. And frosted glass, when, it's, when you're near to it, it's not frosted anymore. Mm -mm. She might have seen him. Oh, so do you think you recognise him? Well, yes, I think I might do. Well, in those days, we didn't have as many sort of electronic aids for um, lineups and stuff. We had albums of pictures, and we had oh. one called the Kinky Index. <laughs> Very self-explanatory. Yeah. <laughs> no need to Kinky use index. it. So I said, I'm just going to go and get some, some albums for you to look at. It's only around the corner, the police station, <laughs> back in 10 minutes. So I put these big books on a coffee table in front of her. I said, Sabbath, look through there, you know, take your time, no rush, and let me know if you if you recognise anybody. So she's opening the book and she's going through. We had three rows with three each page. And oh, look, there's Mr. So-and-so. Oh, no, 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 no. Just look for the ones. She's going through, but she's going further and further into this album. Looking at her face. She's not with us. She's, something's wrong here. I said, Mrs. So-and-so, you look, you're looking a bit perplexed. Is there something wrong? She says, yes. So watch it. I didn't really see his face. So God knows what she was expecting pictures of. <laughs> <laughs> Someone just thought I was going to come up with bookfuls of willies. <laughs> oh, dear me. So oh, moving that. on. <laughs> Uh, so about one of your colleagues in a car wash. Good story about oh, that. Oh, Trevor, yeah. <laughs> Sunday of early is always car maintenance day. So it's when you, you know, you clean the panda cars out inside and out and make sure all the equipment's there or both say not there. Um, and we had a car wash where McDonald's is now. Again, I don't think you might remember this, right? but it's one of those washes where the car stayed still and the brushes moved up and down the side of you. Mm. Yeah, and we had a contract for this car wash to clean the pandas. And the pandas in those days were a bit shaky things, and this was a Vauxhall, well used, you know, done two laps of the sun, <laughs> um, and. One of the guys was in it. And they spin it, shouted for help on the radio. So we're all we all got rushed down there thinking, you know, he's in trouble. Um 
but he, he didn't use the word assistance. That's that's a key word. Assistance means I'm up to me arse in alligators, guys. I need your help quick. Mm. Um, this one was just, I need some help. So he goes down there and the, he started the car wash, but it had stopped with the brushes against the doors. So he's stuck. And the doors didn't fit very well. So the water is pouring in. By the time we got to him, he stood on the back seat of the car and the water's up round his ankles. Wow. So, hey, hey, come on, station sergeant, you've got to come down, have a look at this, before, <laughs> just before he drowns. <laughs> he was banging on the windows. Couldn't, couldn't you know, knock a wind around, but oh. in the end we had to get one of the... Uh, you know, crowbar and just smash a window <laughs> to drag him out through the window. I've heard of people dying in those car washes. Yeah. Yeah, that someone got put on the roof, though, during a stag do. It was like 101 Ways to Die book or something. And they put a stag as a laugh on the roof rack, tied him to it, went through one of them and he drowned. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, like an early form of waterboarding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went, went to a uh, car wash once, um, where somebody had uh, thought it was a would be clever, you know, the central rollers in the middle of it, mm. where the the cleaning things are, are attached to. Um, put a couple of hundred, six, eight inch nails through them. So the first car that went through it that morning wow. got absolutely ripped to pieces. What well, so he did it deliberately, obviously, to cause oh, yeah, carnage, criminal damage. Yeah. Wow. I won't go through a car wash again. And it did the job. It really did the job. I've never seen this car, car in as much many bits. I mean, the roof was just like somebody, somebody got at it with a tin opener. Wow. <laughs> what, what, what happened when you broke into a house for a district nurse? Oh, again, Brit. I, do you know, if I wasn't a policeman, I'd have been a burglar. I used to break into that many places. <laughs> um... Back in the mid-70s, we, we started a, a series called Unit Beats. And this is where it, there, was, there was 10 beats covering all of witness. And one Bobby was assigned to that bit. And that was his beat all day, every day. And the idea was, you didn't drive around in a car, you walked around, you got to know the, um, you, you know, you, you beat well. And um, I, I'd walking down... Cooper Street, sorry, Regent Road, just off the town centre. And um, the wife of one of the traffic officers, who was a district nurse, I, went, I knew quite well, shouted me over, said, can't get, can't get in. You know, she's not answering me calls <laughs> again. Um, so uh, in the end, I, I climbed in this time. There was a window open, a transom window. Climbed in through there, but... Um, Unfortunately, me, the, the belt would be tunic. Do you remember policemen's tunics? Tunics. Yeah, like a like an army tunic with a belt. That was our that was our uniform. Um, you know, it was full not, not these camping pants that they have these days. Um, you had a full tunic. You know, four pockets and, and a belt, epaulets. Oh, I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, as I climbed in through the window, the window stay log the two little prongs that hold the window bracket one of them caught on me on the tunic of me 
and jacket. Oh. So as I'm going further down, I get past the point of no return. I can't come back because I'm too far through, and I can't go any further forward because my belt's caught on the window. And, of course, the district nurse is absolutely wet in herself. She's absolutely no use whatsoever. And I'm hanging upside down, <laughs> peering out upside down through the window. <laughs> she just... Uh, anyway, in the end, um, the doctor, my own GP from the surgery around the corner came past and saw what was going on. So he came over. He started laughing as well. <laughs> He's got just the thing. He said, goes into his case bag thing, comes out with a scalpel and just reached in and went right across my belt. Well, that Were you not nervous? <laughs> I didn't have time to be nervous. I went down like a sack of spuds <laughs> and landed on this poor woman's sideboard. <laughs> so, oh, but she was all right. She, she was alive, one of the few that came out alive. Um, but yeah, that, that was that was me, my GP, trying to break my neck. <laughs> you were pranking drunks at night courts. Oh, wow. <laughs> Again, this, is, this isn't just... I'm sure this happens all over the country in some form or another. <laughs> we get some of the roughens in, the, the drunks. Um, Windus Police Station was next door to the courts and there was an interlocking corridor and a flight of stairs. And you were up the flight of stairs from the cells and then you came out into the dock. Mm. It was just a security measure kind of thing. And um, we had a couple of drunks in the drunk tank. And it was quiet. We'd hold court. <laughs> we'd, we'd open the court, turn the lights on. Who the, addresses the judge? Oh, no, we didn't have a judge. It was a magistrate. So oh. we had the night, uh, the night jack, the night CID guy, because he wore a suit. So he was the, he was the magistrate. <laughs> Some were better than others. Um, we borrowed the inspector's tunic, so... This is well before CPS days. We needed to do our own prosecutions. And someone would be the, the prosecuting inspector. So he dragged this guy, still half conscious, up to the up into the dock. And um, <laughs> the, the clerk of the court would read out the charge. And the arrest, arresting officer would come into the box, pocketbook out. I was on duty at such and such a time. I saw this and he did that and I called him that and he called me that and he hit this and I hit that. And that's it. That's my evidence, your worships. Thank you, officer. You may go. Have you anything to say before I pass sentence? <laughs> and this CID guy, if he knew his life, he disappeared down under the Come back with a black handkerchief on his head. No. It is the sentence of this court that this behaviour cannot be tolerated. You'll be taken here to a place of execution where upon you <laughs> hang by the neck until you are dead. <laughs> Drag him back down the stairs and put him in the cells again. <laughs> Which was all very well <sighs> until the next morning when the early shift came on. And the first thing you do in early is you bail the prisoners. You clear the cells. So you go to get the, the, the early shift, go to get this guy... And they think, they're coming to hang him. <laughs> so he's like, he's got a foot either side of the door, John. You know, it's, no, no, no. I was only drunk. Was only drunk. <laughs> and there's the station sergeant rubbing his brows. 
Mm. Night shift have been having courts again, have they? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Mm. But it did tend mm. to cut down on recidivism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm. night courts. Happy days. Mm. Did they not kick off? If somebody sentenced me to death, no matter how drunk I was, I think I'd probably... <laughs> yeah. Cause... I'd sober you up, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think there was that... Well, there's many a guilty plea being submitted on the promise of rescinding the death sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so your probationary PC cycling test we have next. Yeah, well, pro- probations we used to put them through all sorts. Um, one not just the morgue. <laughs> not just the morgue, no. Some of them are a little bit more humane. But uh, the cycling proficiency test was a regular one. If we had a bike that worked, but it wasn't very often. Um, we used to do it on nights, tail end of night shift when things are quieting down. Give them a route to navigate and get back in a certain length of time. And this, this lad, off he went. Time's getting on, he should be back by now. Ye gods, he should be back by Where's he gone? We're, we're off shift now. <laughs> <laughs> then we got a phone call from Merseyside. Way, way. Gattaca way, said... Have you lost one of your bobbies? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we have actually said. Doing the cycling proficiency test, were we? <laughs> well, yeah, we were. We'll bring him home. <laughs> <laughs> so he did his cycling proficiency test, came back in a Merseyside police car. <laughs> oh. Happy days, happy days. What about the custody sergeant golf results? <laughs> But of course, this sergeant it was an absolute golf fanatic. Um, he loved watching it on the television, he loved playing it. And it was a weekend where there was a big tournament. I, I'm not a golfist myself, so I don't know what it was, but it was one of the big ones. And he banned radios and TVs, nothing was allowed down the cells. Mm. He was going to go home at 10 o'clock, a couple of beers put the video on and sit and watch the golf till about three in the morning. So he was, we were banned from mentioning it. Um, no pain of death. <laughs> you couldn't blow the secret. No, no spoiler alerts. <laughs> so we thought, well, well, we can't mention it, but we know somebody you can. So again, end of shift, we're getting the prisoners out. Charging them, bailing them, and one of them we had a, a little word with, and uh, part of the procedure when you get charged, the charge is formally read out to you, and you're asked if you have any reply to the charge, which is written on the charge sheet, and then you sign it. So this prisoner, young lad, got charged, and Peter said, "Have you any reply to the charge?" To which the reply came, "Yeah." I see Sevilla Barristeros won the golf this year. <laughs> <laughs> Complete oh, spoiler. Mm. Slammed his pen down. Take this little back to the cells. He's not having bail. <laughs> he did get bail in the end. He did get yeah. bail. <laughs> but yeah, so oh, that was how we spoiled his golf. <laughs> so you've got quite a few stories about a dog handler. Um, I think the first one's obviously the confiscated lorry. And then it goes on. Oh, yeah. We had one dog handler, John Evans. And John was just an absolute legend. No fine points about him at all. 
in fact his dog for years and years and years was uh, listed in the Guinness Book of Records for the highest standing jump. Lancon Sultan the Fifth. What a name. Wow. Yeah. I can remember that from 1973-74. And John, although he was a dog handler through and through, he was one of the guys who could not go out with that humane killer told about and shoot a dog. Now, I'd have thought a dog handler would have been very sympathetic that way, but mm. he went out to do it one day, took the humane killer, half an hour later, come back, tears in his eyes. Mm. This big, rough, tough Bobby put the gun down, just can't do it. But um, he used to drive through the middle of witness in the old Austin A35 van, dark green, dressed as a Santa Claus, singing jingle bells at the top of his voice. <laughs> Absolute head mm. case. Um, <laughs> his, his dog, Lancon, again. We had one guy who was absolutely terrified of police dogs. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm not that comfortable with them. You know, these land sharks, are, to me, police dog means that's all they bite is policemen. Have you ever um, been chased by a police dog? I remember Witness versus Warrington match, Chemex versus oh. the Wires. Oh, that's always a war, that one. That was at home. And at the end Good of Friday, it... Good Friday, then. And at the end of it, I think there was dogs. Yeah. I have, they're quick. <laughs> if, if you're up to your nether regions in alligators, um, that growling noise is like music to your ears. Mm. They are brilliant. Yeah. Um, but four o'clock brew... If it's quiet, we used to have a brew on nights about four o'clock. And John went and put his dog in the back seat of uh, the Hale Village, Bobby. Chris. Now, Chris was mortally terrified of dogs. Sits the dog in. Ten past, quarter past four, out he goes, drive back to Hale Village. And he just swept the car around up, up the ramp onto Milton Road, checked his rearview mirror and saw this huge head. <laughs> <laughs> in his review mirror, <laughs> slammed the brakes on, ran out of the car, <laughs> back into the police station, vaulted the, the desk, the front desk, and ran down and shut himself in a cell. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Terrified. <laughs> and there's John absolutely killing himself, laughing. But he, he was just a legend, was John Evans. And absolutely, mm. He went into a petrol station in his own car once, and interrupted uh, an armed robbery at the petrol station. Oh, wow. Locked them both up. Got the Queen's Police Medal for it. Single-handedly. Yeah. yeah. And off duty, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> he, he, was, he, he was a copper's copper, was John. Mm. Real good. If, if you go into a pub fight, he's the one you want on your back. <laughs> Every time. What about the lorry load? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Crime squad again. We've intercepted a lorry on Cronton Lane, which is right out on the northern sticks of Witness. Nothing round about, not even street lamps. Um, John and I turned up there and said, said, look after this lorry, we'll be back for it in a bit. A bit, the end of the shift, and there's still nobody come. <laughs> I mean, you've got two grown fellas there in the darkness playing I Spy with my little life. <laughs> we were bored, witless, absolutely. <laughs> with no tea, coffee, refs or anything. And um, when they did come up for it, 
to got a driver to drive it back down. I think it was going down to Manchester. Turned out it was a lorry load of pornographic material being sat on all night. <laughs> <laughs> sat with no reading material. <laughs> but yeah, that was John again. New PC trying to throw a brew out of moving van. What? Oh, yeah. A good probationer. And for about three years, I was the only authorised van driver on the block. And it's hard work, pre-power steering days, and it's the uh, you know the transit-sized van, and we had one, you know the Hooley van, um, which was always out. You didn't, you was, you either your shift was ten till six on nights, and you either came in at one o'clock or two o'clock for about forty-five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but weekends, you, you just couldn't, you, you just didn't get the chance. And if you're in the van, there's no, there's nobody else to take the van out. So I was stuck um, driving the van for eight hours. So I'd take me, me refs and my coffee out with me. And uh, parked up at Chestnut Lodge, just off the town centre again. And we got a hurry up call. And I'm sitting there drinking my coffee. Out it went. Wound, wound the window up. Not <laughs> pressed the button, wound the window up. I remember them. And off we went. And this young... Uh, and probably sat at the side of it. He did the same. His coffee went whap. Only his window was still wound up. Mm. So he got his own coffee back in his face. Oh. Face full of scalding. He's jumping around and patting his face and screaming. And I'm trying to drive on blues and tubes. And the tears are just tripping me up. <laughs> I, I could barely see where it was going. And I'm rattling this van down to the town centre. Mm. 85 miles an hour. <laughs> Couldn't see things. Oh. oh, drunk putting chips on recently <laughs> used cash machine. Oh yeah. Oh, this is this is a harmless one. Mm. Um, I mean, cash machines are quite standard now, but I don't know if you remember when they first came out. The buttons were protected by a slide away glass screen, perspex screen. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I was parked up opposite our NatWest Bank, lights out, just watching on nights again. And I saw a drunk staggering past in that west. And a young lady had just been using the machine and walked away from it. And this guy comes staggering past and sees one of his shoelaces on, puts his chip wrappers down, a chip tray of chips, and on the machine, bends down, ties his shoelace and stands up again. By which time the screen had come down and cut him off from his supper. No. <laughs> his chips... <laughs> he's knocking seven bells out of this screen oh. trying, trying to rest- trying to get his, trying to get his sausage chips back <laughs> I just sat there and laughed and laughed and laughed in the end I thought oh, I can't see the old going got my bank card out and put the thing put the card in the, up on the screen oh. and he got his supper back but, oh, I mean the timing of that was it was like something off the TV it was brilliant what happened to the boy racer's ear? He lost it. What? <laughs> he lost it. This was not a very nice lad. Um, one of those who thought he could drive better than the police. I mean, all the years I've been in this job, it's a funny job. The only job I know is where everybody thinks they can do a copper's job better than they can. Wow. They can run faster. They can fight better. They can fill forms in better. And they can certainly drive better. 
not through some of the courses we've had to go through, you can't, no. But yet everybody thinks he can do the job. Well, this young lad thought he was, you know, predecessor to Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> and in the end, um, basically ran out of talent one day and wrapped up around Kingsway traffic lights. And I don't know how he did it, but he, his ear had gone. Wow. You know, he just sliced it. And I went up to back up the, the traffic lad colleague of mine um, reporting it. And I went to sort of help out. And there's this young buck effing and jeffing and trying to tell Rob how to do his job and this, that and the other. And uh, looking at his you know, the ear that's like... Did he came, come out of the car and hit the road then? No. Uh, I, I, to this day, I've no idea how he come to lose his ear. Whether he had a seat, uh, his seatbelt was off mm. or whatever. Mm. But he wasn't too happy about it. Oh, and we loaded him in the ambulance. And <laughs> he, he shouted to me and asked me, not very politely, to pass him his mm. Sony Walkman, which was very new and very expensive at the time. And I said, what do you want a stereo for? <laughs> I'll give you five for it. <laughs> you want your stereo? <laughs> You've only got one <laughs> He had a sense of humour failure on Good. that one as well. Are you going to write a book with all these stories, Ian? You, the detail is really impressive, and oh, I don't know. It's like classic anecdotes, aren't they? Like humorous and yeah. But this, so I just said before with the security things that you can't really say, but yeah. Um, the, the funniest one, to my mind, was that one, Annie. The second story, um, I sent to you. Again, I got published another 25 quid. Bring the money, Bob. <laughs> Bring the money. Um, <laughs> I was on early's. I just had my reps at nine o'clock. And it was Wednesday. Wednesday was, was it Wednesday or Thursday? It was half day. That shows you how long ago it was when we used to have half day closing. And the town was pretty quiet. So I thought, I'm not going to go. I'll go down the bottom and Clark Gardens. Do you remember them? No. Back of um, the Newtown area, Charlotte Street, the, um, Sutton's Lane, um, behind the market, basically. And three stories, and it was elderly residents there with a, an on-site warden. Um, I thought, all oh, people are great. when You know, when you've got time to sit and listen to some of the stories they tell you, you know, the... Mm. really broaden your horizons. It's Definitely. fascinating to listen to. And I used to love going down there and get just talking to a couple of the old, old guys there. And um, I just got around the corner and this aforementioned warden jumped out at me. She said, it's Annie. What? I said, back. She said, we haven't seen her all day and been knocking on the door. And, you know, we're not getting any answer. Here we go again, sudden death. Wonder if I've got a form in my pocket. Um, so I'm going through mentally what I thought. Well, really, the first thing I need to ascertain is just verify the fact that Annie has indeed popped her clogs and she is dead. Mm. So up to the door, I'm in a banging on this door. And it was it was ye old oaks of England. I left half the skin off my knuckles on this door, hammering and banging. Look through the letterbox, trying to shout, and you push the letterbox open. And all you saw is this black. Why do all old ladies have thick black curtains at the back of the letterbox? I thought you were going to say something else when you mentioned the letterbox there. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thinking, no. So I said to the woman that there was, I said, Have you looked in through the window? 
And she looked at me with utter disdain on her face. She's on the third floor. I'm not Spider-Man, you know. Obviously impressed by my superb observations. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes down outside. And there's a pub across the road. So went and hammered the landlord up. More skin gone off me knuckles. I borrowed a ladder. And this ladder stopped about two feet short of the top window. So I'm like, top. no problem with ladders, but when you've, you're on the top couple of rungs and there's nowhere for your hands to go, apart mm. from trying to stick to the window, banging on the Annie, come on, love. You know you've got a fella in there. Open the window. That was that was the command, rapidly followed by a little wind, but then I can get down off the bloody ladder. <laughs> Nothing again. So gets down off the ladder, back to terra firma, more firma, less terror. back up to the door, hammering and banging, nothing. So I thought, right, worked on the telly, pulled myself up to my full five foot eight, shouldered the door. <laughs> Might work in the telly, it doesn't work in real life. Two or three or four of these and I'm to walk a bit lopsided by this time. <laughs> one all out of salt, one last, give it everything. So, walked across the corridor, ran at the door, and gave it everything I've got. The only problem was the door had got more than I had, so I just bounced back onto the wall again. <laughs> oh, God. Could feel my skeleton just dribbling into my boots. Oh. So, the warden's there, you know. I've rattled all the doors, I've trampled over her flower beds and stuck ladder in, ladder in the lawn. And she was beginning to wish she called the bloody fire brigade instead of me. Mm. Um, and she's looking at me very disdainfully. <laughs> and saying, right, the door's got to go. That door has got to go. I'll do the boots. Give it a booting. So, got me Doc Martins. Oil proof, only oil proof, grease proof, weather proof. Tell you something, they're not door proof. Mm. <laughs> Added a shattered leg to the list of no list of growing industrial injuries. Oh. I said the warden, she's looking ever increasing. Well, by this time, I was beginning to wish she'd call the fire brigade as well. So he looked at me and said, "If you're having trouble, my husband's got a, a, a sledgehammer in the garage." <laughs> Oh, thanks for that, love. No. Can't tell you the the look that that <laughs> elicited. So she comes back with this lump and sledgehammer. I thought, right, that door's getting it now. It was getting personal by this time. But, so it's me versus a seven before piece of wood with a piece of twenty-eight pound of British steel in my hand. So I just demolished this door to match wood. It was like Schwarzenegger had gone through it. And sort of triumphantly strode across <laughs> this pile of rubble that used to be a door, uh -huh. stepped into the room, and it was like a corridor leading away with two doors on the left and the lounge straight ahead. And the front door on the left was the bedroom, which is usually where you find the bodies. Went in, nothing, perfectly made bed, everything order, carry on down the corridor. Next door was the kitchen, same as the bedroom. All neat and tidy, nothing there, nice and warm, everything as it should be. It's, it's going to be the lounge, the bottom one. 
So down to the bottom of the corridor, opened the door, and this heat wave hit me. I thought, and there she was, there's Annie, sat in a rocking chair, and it was just surrounded by little electric, you know, these um, electric fires that yeah. glow red. She had about seven of those all cranked up round her. You could have grown tomatoes in there. <laughs> so I walked across to her, stepping over the, the wires and the fires, and still got this lump hammer in my hand, <laughs> which I thought was mm. Thor coming. <laughs> I said, Annie, Annie, are you all right, love? She looked at me and just growled. Of course I am. <laughs> then she just looked at me and said, but I'm glad you've come, officer. There's been somebody banging on my door for the last <laughs> hour. <laughs> oh. oh, brilliant. Oh. Oh, I couldn't believe that one. Oh. Somebody's been banging on... Yeah, it's been me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, glad you're here, officer. The next thing was like radio, radio through <laughs> to the, uh, the police station. Can you get the council down here and build her a new door? <laughs> oh, I did a number on that one. Yeah, Annie. Another 25 quid in the grocery fund. <laughs> so, we're at the point now we're going to be talking about you arresting Purple Aki. And for many of the viewers, and even Jen, who are not familiar with Aki, I'll just set the scene because your arrest of him coincided with when he was actually in witness feeling my mate's muscles. <laughs> That's about right. So, Purple Aki, if you're not familiar with Aki, and, and including Jen, very tall gentleman, very well built, and all of a sudden he just started appearing in northern towns, feeling young men's muscles. So, in our little clique, there was Wildman, um, Witty, Hammy, and a couple of others. And on the, oddly enough, on the nights I was home studying was all the nights that Aki come and felt their muscles. I never actually saw Aki in the person. But Wildman, like, Aki was feeling Wildman's muscles and he had Wildman sitting, standing in, in Birchfield Gardens Pond for some reason one night. Oh, why Santa used to be the, uh, <laughs> but they the made, park keeper there. But they made friends. And Aki was driving Wildman around and stuff. Um, there was a running street battle where all these lads come to beat Wildman up, and Aki, protect, Aki was on Wildman's side, and they all ran off. So there's, there's two sides to Aki. <laughs> I, I only ever saw one. Uh, but it was... I wouldn't call him famous. I wouldn't attribute him with that. He, wasn't, he didn't have the, the, he the, was as the notoriety that he has now. No, he was as infamous. This is the late 80s, isn't it? About then, that would be about right. Um, but, I mean... I think it was at Chestnut. I really don't remember that much about it. It was just one of those something and nothing jobs. When did uh, you first hear of, of him? That was the first of him. This was it. Um, I was aware that other people had... He was getting a name for himself. But the problem was, not that he'd been feeling muscles and <laughs> testing biceps, as it were. Um, it was the fact that there's a, a crowd of people there wanted to kill him, basically. So... It wasn't an arrest as such to get him, you know, for offensive. It was to take him to a place of safety, really. Um, and obviously for a, you know, that kind of arrest, there's no further action. You're just off up the road. Um, so he'd been feeling muscles on young men. And, this, and this is what they were shouting at. Parents had come out, had they? But um, not at this particular time, you know. He was beginning to 
have a bit of a reputation, I suppose, and a um, bit of a Pied Piper sort of character. You know, kids would flock round him. I never understand that. But um, was he an say, interesting bloke to look at? Tall, well built, had a sort of a a bluish sheen to his complexion. Hmm. Um, but he he did start round about then. Um, carrying a, a carrier bag round with him with a tape recorder in it, taping any um, contact he had, you know, with the police officers. Because he became a legal eagle in prison. Because yeah. he, 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 he documented everything, and that's an example of his documentation, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was something he was, he was well known for, for doing. But um, as I say, this was early on in his... Career, if you want to call <laughs> it that. <laughs> um, you know, so it, as I say, it's, it's more for his own safety than anything. Because he, he, he did get a, a fearsome reputation. Um, but he started going out of town. Um, you know, as far afield as Manchester. Uh, I'm not sure if, if he was ever seen in Liverpool. But he, this is just when he was, he was a local nuisance more than anything. Did he have a daytime job? Or was this his job? Well, I, I wasn't aware of a job. I wasn't aware just of just going around town career. to town. Yeah, it was. I say it was more a question of going there and rescue him rather than arrest him. But was he, he surrounded by hostile people when you arrived? What was say surrounded? There's a few. The, the local kids were jumping up and down. You know, um, sort of pandering to his notoriety. Uh, but yeah, there were there were a couple of adults there that you know. Didn't really seem as, um, you know, somebody, you know, to to be famous for. Did he appreciate you guys rescuing him? No, I don't think so. Was it, Did he get in the car easily or was he... Well, he had to be persuaded, you know, come on. <laughs> you know, unless you want the next vehicle, you're getting in to be an ambulance, I suggest that we go. <laughs> you know, and, and you would be arrested for breach of the peace and, you know, the Ways and Means Act. Just get him out of the way before, you know, the scene turned even uglier. And did you drop him off somewhere else? Yeah, down at the police station. At the police station? Yeah, where it was just uh, documented and... Same as yourself, really. (laughs) 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 He wasn't scared straight like me, though. No, it was a a means to an end. Um, And that end, basically, was his safety. The save was... He was beginning to get a bit of a, a reputation round town. Whether that was instrumental in the fact that he was started moving further out into the cities, I don't know. Well, he got banned from Witness, did he? But he managed to overturn that ban using his legal skills. I believe so. To be honest, I've, I've not followed his his career that closely. I've never found him that worthwhile, to be honest. The strange thing was he was front page of the Witness Weekly News when I left for American 91. Mm. When I got back, I went shopping in Widnes, look over at the newsstand, 17 years later. There he is. Still there on the front yeah. page? Yeah. Yeah, hangs around like a bad smell. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So the only, the only good thing was um, when my children, my when the kids found out I'd arrested Purple Aki, my street cred went up considerably. Yeah. <laughs> Your daughter said she's been making friends through that story. <laughs> <laughs> She'll make threads through anybody's story. <laughs> yeah, 
another one of my uh, little encounters. Well, thanks for the Aki story. Well, huge thank you for coming on, Ian. Yeah. Is, are you on socials? Or is there any way people can contact you or support you? Do you do anything online? Support? Why do you think I need mental support? <laughs> <laughs> I need counselling. <laughs> um, no, I'm on Facebook like in, like everybody else. Do you else. want us to add your Facebook to this then? Um, well, I'll ask my daughter how to do that. Just, okay. I'm, I'm not very good with these computer things. I yeah. only... The only thing I put on Facebook is when I go out for a hike, I'll yeah. put a, a map and a route up and um, how, try to encourage other people to go out and do a bit of walking mm. outdoors. Mm. Put a, you know, sort of a map reference up where to park your car and sat-nav settings mm. and follow this route, go through that gate and up to there. And quite a few people follow me. In fact, I've had, even had some people send me photographs back when they've done the same route. Wow. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so that's that's my my bit with Facebook. Yeah. Fabulous. So let us know in the comments what you thought about this. <laughs> you can check out the description box for everybody's links, including Jen's Organic Cotton Clothing Company. Boomer and Jen, right down there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cheers. Cheers. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Ian. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you.